When you're driving, speed bumps force you to slow down. Some are big, some are small. Regardless of the size, they can really mess up your car if you go over them too fast. In this go, go, go world, society tends to have a negative view of speed bumps. But in my opinion, they don't have to be a bad thing. We all go through speed bumps in life, such as getting married, a spiritual awakening, having children, changing jobs, a trauma, and more. In this podcast, you will hear the various speed bumps that people have encountered and how those experiences have shaped them into the person they are now. Because every story has speed bumps, and that is what makes life interesting. since I was in high school was the first time I can remember noticing it. It works a little bit like one of those big machines that like drills a tunnel underneath like the English channel to build the channel. If you've seen that big thing, it's this giant drill. Yeah. And so it just, it, it like with a laser attached to the front of it. And I've always ex- experienced that just drilling into the heart of uh, the heart of ideas and the heart of matters. And then l- recently it's a little bit like when it gets to the end of that, there's like a smooth wall. And then I feel over the smooth wall for the little tiny crack and then I jam a crowbar in it and I pull really hard. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of, that's kind of how my mind works and I, and I, I really enjoy it. And, um, the other thing that I really like about myself and, uh, I've observed this probably since sometime 10 or 15 years ago was I try really hard to connect my worldview to my actions to make sure that whatever I believe in the big macro kind of cosmic view translates down into how I treat other people, how I engage with politics, how I manage my day, how I think and how I speak. So I try to plug all those two pieces in together. And I really like those two things about myself. That's phenomenal. And I don't think many people do that in a conscious way. I -hmm. think maybe people take their experiences and unconsciously use them to shape their opinions of others or their experience or their actions. But Mm -hmm. I don't, think most people do that in a very conscious way. And that's really cool. Mm, Yeah. Most people don't think all the way through the implications of their worldview. Yeah. Right. They, they have their view of the, of the, the way the, the world, you know, meaning human society works or the way the universe works, but they really struggle to take it all the way down to how am I going to treat this individual person in front of me? And not only that, how am I going to walk away and think about them? How am I going to manage my own mind in response to my environment? They, they don't always go that far with it. Yeah. And, and that's, that's such an important step because if you're not willing to really press on your worldview to make your life, I guess, difficult in a virtuous way, can you really say you have the worldview? Yeah. And th- Maybe it's a country song, but it's um, you got to stand for something or you fall for anything. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that just ties in really well, because if you can't articulate or maybe even defend what you believe, I agree. Do you really believe it? Is it really that strong of a moral or a virtue to you? Yeah. If you're not willing to if you're not willing to stand by your worldview, even when it costs you something. Yeah. Right. If you're not yeah. willing to stand up for something when it when it costs you status or money or a relationship or, or reputation or name all the things, if you're not willing to pay with that thing, that material thing for the worldview, you don't actually have the worldview. You have something else. I one thousand percent agree with you, mm-hmm. and uh, I've explained that to people, and they're like, "Oh, that's a very harsh view. <laughs> you know, you, you can't possibly understand." And I'm like. Mm. 
no, I can. Mm-hmm. And then my favorite response is, well, that's just a very privileged thing to do. If you can just walk away from a job or you can walk away from whatever. And I'm like, no, no, that mm-hmm. doesn't mean I'm privileged. No, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. It, ju- it just means that there's a principle higher for me than money. And the thing is what I tell when, when people respond in that way, I say, look, you know, you're allowed to have another worldview. Yeah. Like, just, just articulate what it is. But the, the trick is, people aren't actually willing to articulate what it is because they know how it'll sound when they do, right? So they want to turn it around and make it about you rather than like, no, no, we're not talking about me. We're talking about you. (laughs) What do you believe? Yeah. Yeah. You're so judgmental. Yeah. You're you're so judgmental. All the isms, all the ists. um, Yeah. But you've, you wrote an essay that I found that you wrote in July of 2020 and then you read it on your podcast, December of, 21 or 22 last year Um, 22 and you have experienced things and gone all over the world and participated in religious ceremonies and you know been with cultures that people probably don't most people don't even know the names of Mm. um how has all of those experiences shaped who you are Mm. how much time you got <laughs> so I'll I'll give you the answer that first that first comes to mind. Thank you for asking me this question because here's the answer that first comes to mind. So I traveled for four years between uh, between March of 2016 and March of 2020, and that was a dream that I had wanted for 15 years, 16 years, and, and I pulled it off. So one of the things that happens when you travel for that long, or at least what happens to me when I traveled that long, <clears throat> is is you know, I was when I was traveling, I was in my late 30s and early 40s. So most people when they travel, they're in their early 20s. Mm-hmm. Right. And when you're in your early 20s, you only have a limited number of tools to process reality with because you're still pretty young, yeah. you're going for the experience, you know, hang out with people to have fun, etc. I, I wasn't as interested in that, right? I wasn't I wasn't really interested in that. I was going for for other reasons. But being of that age, I was really able to pay attention and I had enough life experience to bring to help to understand what it was I was seeing and witnessing and being a part of and experiencing. And so what happened over traveling for that long through the countries that I did, including India for six months and China and various, you know, first world, second world and non-world kind of countries, not, <laughs> not non-world, well, depending how you take that. Yeah. yeah. But, um, you know, developing world developed world, developing world, and never will develop world. I've been to those three country, three types of countries. What happened was I learned to see past the novelty. So what ha- when most people travel, they get to a new place, a new country, and they're like, oh, wow, look at that dude, and look at that thing, and the billboard, it's like at home, but it's different, right? And, and mm-hmm. the novelty is part of why we travel. It's part of the excitement of it. Yeah the novelty of new cultures. So I traveled for long enough that the novelty of arriving in a new environment wore off. Mm -hmm. And you would think that this would be a bad thing, but it was actually a beautiful thing because it enabled me to see through to the truth of what a country was about. I was able to see through the the tourist level stuff. I was able to see through that and kind of get an experience of how to navigate backstage to get to understand past the tourist bubble, what these countries were about. And what I saw was, was really very special. Because um, what I saw was that every country has a shadow. Every country has a dark side. Um, And coming from America, we are, and our media is obsessed with telling us about the dark side of America, never ending in the school system as well. Mm -hmm. 
So if you never, so if all you do as an American is you travel to Europe, you see uh, industrialized, developed countries without the problems of America. So you yeah. go to France, it's like, wow, they're drinking wine on the corner and it's so civilized. Why can't we have that in America? And, and people come back with a very judgmental view of America. I went the other way. I went to never will develop countries and I saw how the rest of the world really lives. And I came to understand the glorious aspects of America as well as the shadow. And I also came to see the shadow aspects of the country and the glorious aspects of them. And I had a new appreciation for the world. I understood that every country, like every person has a shadow that it struggles with. Every country, like every person has a dark side and we're all sort of gripped in this struggle between what we might say is righteousness and sin on different levels. And that gave me such a love and such an appreciation for the people of the world that I couldn't have gotten any other way. A true heart compassion for some of the levels of corruption, you know, and violence or poverty that some of these countries deal with because of their own governments, because of because of their geography or things that can't be changed or cultural aspects, not because of some foreign oppression, but because of their own choices. And yet through that, they celebrate, you know, they love, they sing, they dance, they have great food. And every country is locked in this struggle with its own dark side, not just America. And so that made me feel very much like I was very blessed to be um, a member of this of this planet as we work through these struggles as a species. That is a phenomenal perspective because you're right. People do go to Europe or they talk about Canada and they're like, oh, well, Canada has free health care. Why can't we have free health care? And it's. We don't. Maybe it's because we don't want to look at our own shadows. We don't want to consider anyone else like all the pretty other countries. It's all the grass is greener on the other side. And because we never want to look at ourselves, even our own worldviews. The idea of going to, you know, a country, even a, a quote unquote third world country or developing country, I feel like a lot of people who go there, they still go there for the tourists. They, if they go to Africa, it's, well, I'm going to go for a safari. Yeah. You know, um, so yeah, that's, so how many countries have you traveled to? I've been to 34, 34 countries on all six inhabited continents. I haven't been, so I haven't been to Antarctica. Do you want to go to Antarctica? Yeah, it's not it's not super high on my list, but I wouldn't mind setting foot <laughs> in Antarctica for the for the full seven, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's are you like a big mountain climber or was it just um like was it more natural destinations or just the people? I guess is my question. That's a great question. It was a combination. Like I was, I was having my overland journey and I would do various adventurous things. Like I went to uh, the Himalayan Mountaineer, Mountaineering Institute in India, which is um, a three week mountain climbing school in Darjeeling, where you actually go up at to 15 and 17,000 feet at a base camp in the Himalayas and learn how to ice climb. And just me and a bunch of, me and a bunch of Indian guys. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and then I also uh, was on a sailboat uh, with a, a crew of four. Uh, through the South Pacific, so from Fiji to Vanuatu to New Caledonia. So I would do thing adventurous stuff like that, coupled with various religious and spiritual activities that we were talking about, religious festivals and New Age practices. Coupled with that, coupled with being in in the cities and enjoying um, some of the best that city and culture has to offer. So it was well rounded. I wouldn't say that any one of those things was the goal, but it was really experiencing the world on its on its own terms. That's. 
I think that's a really great way to go and travel because some people go and they're like, oh, I just want to look at the pretty things or, oh, they just Mm want to eat the food. And so having that well-rounded picture, um, I think it's probably one of the best ways to travel. Mm -hmm. I know in one of your podcasts, or maybe it was in the blog, you had talked about um, dating a Filipino woman and then a woman from New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And then in one of your speed bumps, you talked about um, codependency and relationships. Were either Mm -hmm. one of those related to that? Uh, They both were in in different ways. But the one that I referenced in the first speed bump was the... um, was the was the first woman the filipino woman in okay. san francisco not that it's not because she was filipino but no 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 no, no. yeah yeah yes yes yeah. <laughs> yeah do you mind sharing about that yeah so um um one of the things that uh, i think mo- the modern world really gets wrong is this whole notion of dating versus courtship right dating is a process of essentially trying on different people to see if you like them. And eventually one might consolidate into, into a marriage mm-hmm. and you wrap up premarital sex and all that stuff kind of with it. And you have this kind of, we try on a bunch of different pseudo marriages until one finally lands, I think is the, you know, our hormones are all mixed up in that and love and romance and all the things that we live with versus a, a courtship model, which is like, I'm going to talk to this person, man or man and woman, and we're going to get to know each other. And we're going to actually see if our values and vision for life and goals and beliefs kind of align before we make a binding commitment, a sacred binding covenant for life together. Mm-hmm. And we decide consciously, not influenced by hormones, all stirred up from, I might say, fornication, like this is a rational decision and we take it seriously. Mm-hmm. So one of the consequences of um, the dating model is that um, especially when we grow up in environments without fathers guiding the process, either helping their sons pick wise women, wise women make wise choices and helping women make the same choices for their, for the men that are courting them is we're just kind of left on our own to fend for ourselves. And what happens when we do that is some of the worst aspects of us come forward, but we don't recognize them at the time because they seem like good ideas. So codependency is one of those where it's like, oh, well, I have something to offer this person and they need it. And so let's build a relationship off of that or let's build a significant part of our relationship off of that. And it's so common. It's so, so, so common for, for both for both men yeah. and women. Codependency is both of them, really. And so and so I was caught in that dynamic where I thought that because I, I had a, a lot to give. And I would meet various women who who had a lot of need, not because there was anything broken or wrong about them because of whatever life circumstances like, oh, this must be what love is. Now, the problem was that over time, as I grew as a man and started to, you know, not want to um, started to want to like be able to stand on my own, like I don't actually need to be cared for in the ways that I thought I did, because it's a mutually caring relationship. It's not a one way thing. Like mm-hmm. one, like they need in different ways. It's like, I'm started learning to stand on my own and I'm starting to need different things in the relationship. And I'm starting to feel the other person not growing as well. And that's when a, that's when a relationship can really become a trap where yeah. one person starts learning to fulfill their own needs in a righteous and, and godly way. And the other person won't take the same step. And so the, the first person, which in this case was me, as I was going through therapy and men's groups and stuff like this, I was growing in strength. And I was like, hey, come with me, like come with me on this journey and um, 
first woman didn't she didn't want to. Um, and so I was I was put in a very uncomfortable place that I either I, I'm I can't stay here unless you um, but you are welcome. Please come with me. And um, ultimately, she wasn't able didn't want to do that. And I was forced into the position of like, well, uh, I had to really think my way through this very, very carefully that um, I have to leave because as long as I stay here and take care of you, you will never discover your own strength. And that was crushing for me to get there. It was like to to record, like I'm not leaving so you discover your own strength because who am I to tell you? But I recognize that I have to take this step to find my own strength and trust that it's gonna work out for you. And there are so many people, both men and women who reach that point who don't have the strength to take that step. And that was probably the biggest speed bump of my life was taking that step forward to my own life to have some of the adventures that I took that we've been talking about, mm-hmm. but it, it came with me having to leave that uh, that relationship and trust this woman who I loved and cared about for many years that she would be that she would be okay that she would that she would ultimately have to find her own way because I I could not stay anymore. Yeah, and I feel like what, whether you want to call it people pleasing or whatever, a lot of people do that where we give so much of ourselves without um anything in return and in certain circumstances like i i understand where that happens but it's also not sustainable long term mm-hmm. there are situations where that's absolutely understandable and necessary and one person has to give more than the other but you know if in a relationship you're meant to grow together if that's mm-hmm. not happening that i feel like is the not the cause, but probably a really big cause of a lot of issues. And you talk about um, how marriage is a binding contract and you didn't have that Mm-mm. binding contract yet. So can I ask you a hard question? Mm-mm. Sure, go ahead. If you were married and had that situation, what would you have done? I wasn't Christian at the time. So okay. so, so you so you're asking the unchristian version of me okay um and I, I that's a really good question we had been talking about getting married not because either of us particularly cared about like doing the whole thing because i didn't have the values i do now it was mostly like well we've been together for a long time let's just have a party and get a bunch of presents right that okay. was kind of the thought yep. Yep. if we had been married um I, I i think the likelihood that we would have been actually married would have been very very low at that point so so it's hard for me to answer the question and that's fair. That's fair. Cause yeah. now having a different worldview, I don't think you would marry someone who you didn't have the same values with to your point of the courtship versus the dating model. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm very, I, on some level, I'm very hesitant to even talk about this because, you know, there's a meme, I guess, an idea that floating around our culture, which is also the title of the movie that men don't leave, right? Like you stay, you stay. Well, it, it's like okay, I understand that, and that does that does speak to a man's loyalty and, and all all these good things about what it means to be a man. But I, I paid a very significant cost in terms of friendships and relationships and all these different things making that step, and I was perceived as so crazy selfish. How can you do that? How can how can I how can you break up with this person? She's wonderful and perfect. Aren't you lucky to be with her? It's like the people had no idea what was going on behind the scenes, and I wasn't about to tell them because it's none of their right. business. Right. Right. But that's the thing is people are very quick to pass judgment on circumstances like that. 
um, without yeah. inquiring any deeper into like, no, it's, it's not what it looks like. It's not what it looks like behind the scenes. Well, in, you know, that's the white knight or the hero, the rescuers often portrayed mm-hmm. in society. And that's what women want in men, right? They want the rescuer. They want the white knight. And so when that good guy comes along, that rescuer, that white knight that takes care of everything, the mm-hmm. idea that they could leave. I think the reason some people probably get so upset is it's crushing their worldview. <laughs> like, the, like the fairy tale doesn't always work out that way. Mm-hmm. The, fa- like, the fairy, yeah, go ahead. The fairy tale just doesn't work that way. And you leaving, they were probably more mad that it messed up their worldview and had nothing really to do with you or her. That's a really good point because I've had <laughs> it's been a number of years and I've had that's a really good point. Yeah, because you know in the fairy tale. The fairy tale ends with the wedding and they lived happily, they get married and they lived happily ever after. And what I tell people is like, no, the story starts at the wedding. Yes. Right. But we never see the prince and the princess going through the daily, you know, the married prince and princess going through daily life together. We never see that. This idea is that like once they get together, then it's going to be magic and happiness and, and, and sunflowers forever. It's like, no, it's never, that's never been the case. So it's a pretty profound lie that's told to us. And, and the courtship model is designed to acknowledge the truth of that. Like, understand that this will be hard. Is this someone that you want to go the distance with? Is this someone that you can go the distance with? And the courtship model is, is meant to be a vetting process where they vet you and you vet them to see like, okay, can we actually like make this work? And, and hopefully you go in with all your senses and all your faculties intact so that when you say, I do, You've spent months genuinely thinking and asking hard questions of that person and yourself to say, do you mean it? Because you're making a solemn vow before God. I didn't have those values at the time, but I see that I've learned them, but I see the the ultimate rightness of them, especially given the way that our culture has thought about marriage for the past 60 or 70 years. I agree. I agree. And hopefully you would also have people around you that if you do get too emotional or too whatever about it, mm. that they can bring you back more to center and help you be logical. Or if you overly romanticize something, because we're guilty of that. We're humans. We have emotions. And, you know, I'm not saying that emotions are bad and I don't think you are either, but mm. if you're going to make that type of commitment, going in with a clear head, I think would drastically reduce the divorce rate. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like emotions, um, there's there's a bunch of words that are wrapped up all in here together. Emotions, love being the primary one, but the real word for what we generally think about as love in our culture is infatuation. Mm-hmm. Infatuation is a, is a hormone surge, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin surging through our bodies all at once. That And hormones are very powerful. They distort in, in very powerful ways our ability to accurately perceive reality. These are bonding hormones. That are designed to get act that they're designed to get activated in the early stages of a physical relationship to bond us together with a person. You can think of them like um, the first stage rocket boosters or the space shuttle. It gets you up off the pad, right? But those it's not gonna it's not gonna get you into orbit. Something yeah. deeper, something more real has to get you up into orbit, and that's love. And and keep you there and keep you from crashing down to earth. That's love, right? And 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 we've lost sight of that. 
in our romantic comedy kind of age where it's like, it's all about the process of falling in love and Disney and magic. And it's like, you never see the, the, the day-to-day work of two people learning to come into reconciliation with each other, two human beings living and trying to make the life together, two men, two women, like not in a dating sense, but like any two people trying to actually make a life, make, make a, a third life, like creating a life and live a life together. There's going to be friction. Right. Mm-hmm. And, 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 we never see that aspect of it because we mistake infatuation for love. And, yeah. and in that we lose sight. Infatuation becomes dangerous because love is a good thing when we're wanting a bad thing called infatuation and we diminish the notion of what love is. It's so much more powerful. Well, and I feel like in society too, we've gotten rid of words and we've changed the meaning of words yeah. and our vocabulary has drastically reduced and so the word infatuation doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. It It's just, well, I love food and I love this and I love this person. It's the, the word infatuation isn't used. And that's part yeah. of the problem is our vocabulary is just shrinking. And so we have to put the closest word to it, even if it doesn't fit perfectly. That's right. That's well said. Someone, someone said on Twitter that uh, we should all be very careful about how we use the word love. Like, oh, I love Chinese food. Like, do you really love Chinese food? Or do you mean that I ve- I strongly like Chinese food? But even yeah. the word like it isn't strong enough. Like, you're 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 right. You're right. Our our vocabulary is very much shrinking, and and the word love is such a great example of that. Yeah, yeah. You talk about. Um, I know a little bit of why you started the Renaissance of Men, and I think mm. part of that is part of your journey in 2020 in that blog post, you talk about how to let, how you had to let go of everything to find the truth mm. and the Renaissance of men. I know a little bit of the backstory, but can mm-hmm. you tell people like how that came to be, why that came to be? Cause I think it's really pow- powerful. People seem to have this misconception when you say the word um, masculinity or femininity or heaven forbid the word submission or being submissive to your husband they kind of lose their marbles and freak out and think that the woman becomes a doormat and you're like no that's that's not it like that's subjugation yeah like you were told a lie like can we go back to the definition of the word Mm -hmm. (laughs) so can you can you elaborate on that a little bit on the The, renaissance of men renaissance of the renaissance of men and how you got there and how you had to let go of some of the things that you thought you understood and knew versus where you are now. Oh man, that was great. Great questions. Thank you. So, so um, the two journeys that I've been on the longest uh, are to, are to understand religion and spirituality and to understand masculinity. So my religion and spirituality journey started when I was, 13, 12, 13, when I was bar mitzvah, because I grew up Jewish. And then I traveled the world and explored all these different new age and, and religious practices, you know, and got into psychology and psychology and, and did all the stuff, ayahuasca, you know, for those who know what that is, 15 mm-hmm. ceremonies and, and all of that, like I've done all those things. So that journey was about 30 years. My journey to understand masculinity was 20 years. That started in, uh, in 2001. Um, when I was, when I took a class on, uh, Carl Jung, uh, Jungian psychology, and they did a whole bit about the Lord of the Rings, about how the Lord of the Rings is a great overview of the different aspects of masculinity. And that was absolutely life-changing for me because I thought being thoughtful, you know, 
uh, uh, being, you know, quiet, but very much like I was much more introverted then than I was now, but I had a very strong sensitive side to my own experience and others. And I thought I was broken because I wasn't into pizza and beer like all the other quote unquote real men were. So something broken about me as a man. And so then the Lord of the Rings movies were coming out at the time and I was taking this class. I'm like, there's nothing broken about me at all. Like there's, there's something, there's something wrong with our contemporary understanding of masculinity. So I set out on that journey. Both of those journeys together culminated in Christ in 2020 uh, because I had gone all the way through the religious and new age world. And I found that in the new age, there are some questions that it just doesn't answer. For example, what is evil? does evil exist? Where does it come from? And the new age world won't talk about it. Either says it either says evil doesn't exist, or it changes the subject to love and light, or you, you know, you, you manifest what you think about. And so don't think about it because you'll manifest it. I'm like, that's not a good, I don't like that answer. <laughs> the tunneling laser thing, like, no. <laughs> so they wouldn't talk about it. Right. But then I also discovered when I discovered, um, I, I, when I also began exploring masculinity and I went to a men's initiation in 2013, and that led me into this whole, you know, mythopoetic men's movement, Iron John, Robert Bly, where they were starting to think about masculinity in this poetic way. That also led me into the manosphere. And I'm like, wait a minute, there are so many men all over the world that have been thinking about masculinity for such a long time, and it's not just me. And I also observed within the new age world, there aren't too, there weren't too many confident, grounded, strong men. So, and I'm starting to grow into that guy. And so I'm having all these questions with the religious world I'm in, like, wait a minute, they're not answering my questions. And as I'm trying to stand up and be more confident, speak more from my chest, people are getting really uncomfortable, like, whoa, who's this guy? I'm like, okay, so nothing's fitting, right? Who I yeah. was, right? <laughs> right. And, and I'm actually, I actually wrote, it's funny that you asked this because I wrote about this in the intro for my podcast that's coming out this week with Zach Garris. I talk about this more, who I was and what I believed didn't fit with what I was learning and who I was becoming. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I was sort of forced in this position of once I discovered Christianity, or once Christianity discovered me, depending on how you look at it, it was like, this is all the and these are all the answers that I've been looking for. And it's talking about them very honestly, the book mere Christianity by CS Lewis is a brilliant overview, simply Christian by NT Wright is another one. And I was forced in this place like, well, I have to give up everything I've believed up until this point in my life to progress forward people relationships because they're not going to come with me and so um and so I, I made that i made that choice i had to give up everything that i thought about what it meant to be a man and everything everything that i thought about religion and spirituality that i'd given 30 years of my life to i had reached i had reached the boundary line i had reached the borderlands where the place where you're not supposed to go we don't go to we don't go to Christianity. We don't go there. Don't go there. Right. And yeah. I was like, but there are no more answers here. They have the answers. So I had to cross that threshold and, and let everything go. And I, I paid a steep price for it. I lost friends. I lost family members, but um, you know, what is there, again, as I said, what is your worldview worth if you're not going to pay something with it? And so the truth was worth something to me. Well, and not only that, but if you're unable to question things yes then that's a problem whatever that thing is right whether it's your faith it's the government if it's um politics if it's science with a dollar sign um <laughs> like <laughs> oh we're gonna be good friends <laughs> um it's 
if you can't question it, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you say now that your view of masculinity and what a man is has changed. So how would you define masculinity now? Mm, I realize I never fully answered your question about where the Renaissance of men came from. Do you want me to tie those final threads together or answer this question now? However you want to do it. Okay. So the final step I'll just say is that you mentioned the essay that I wrote, uh, To Lose the World and Gain My Soul. I wrote that essay in July of 2020 as I was becoming Christian because I was finding the woke was taking over the world. And because I had traveled and because I had been a travel photographer and uh, I have an Instagram just at Will Spencer that I don't use anymore, but my, a lot of my travel photography is there and on the website as well. I was at the time they were telling people to post black squares on their Instagram to signal, you know, solidarity with George Floyd. I'm like, I am not going to be told what to do with my Instagram. You do not get to do that. You do not get to shame me. So I just didn't post anything at all. And I was like, in July, 2020, I'm like, this is nonsense. Like, I'm not going to just be silent to avoid conflict, right? And I'm not going to give in. So I had to find a place within myself to stand to say, like, this is ridiculous. No. And I discovered that I had done and seen and experienced all these things from different cultures and different places around the world. And so no one could accuse me of being a racist or any of those things. Because, like, one thing racists don't do is racists don't backpack for six months alone through India. That's not what they do, right? Yeah, yeah. They don't go at all, right? And so, and, and so the picture that I can portray of, of the Indian people and what they've managed to accomplish under, under great pains over the past 80 years, like, it's, I loved the world. You know, I didn't hate, even though, and so people couldn't accuse me of this. So I'm like, I'm going to stand here and I'm going to proclaim the truth as I understand it. So that blog post went viral. And that was when I discovered that the, the men that I was learning from Many of, many of the men around me wanted to hear what I had to say. I'm like, oh, they want to hear what I have to say instead of me listening for a long time. So I started the Renaissance of Men as a platform to share some of my ideas about masculinity and document this global rebirth of masculinity that's happening. That's what it was intended to be, was to highlight some of the, some of the men and that were really speaking the most boldly. And it's, it's grown and changed since then, but that was where the Renaissance of Men came from. Okay. So, yeah, now how would you define masculinity, not toxic masculinity, not masculinity in the way that's portrayed in the media, but true, maybe biblical masculinity is the right mm. phrase. The word, the word that often gets left out of this that I make sure to include at the start of my podcast is virtue, the rebirth of, the rebirth of virtuous masculinity, because you can have non-virtuous masculinity. For example, Genghis Khan right? Or yep. for a contemporary example, you can be like, I don't know, Andrew Tate, whatever you think of him. Like Andrew, there, Andrew Tate has many virtues, but I don't think that he would call himself a virtuous man, right? Yep. He, he does have many virtues of being confident and not spoken. And, you know, he, he's, he's very intelligent. These are virtues, but he would not describe himself as a virtuous man, right? right. Genghis Khan had many virtues, but was not a virtuous man. And no. you can think of many through history. Yeah. So it's so just raw masculinity uncultivated by virtue can be a destructive force. Yeah. Now, what we do is we take that, that energy and we harness it, harness it into higher service for something greater than ourselves. Mm -hmm. And for men that manifests most immediately in service of a wife and a family. That is the average desire of most men. Most men do not have it in them or want to be the William Wallace character. In fact, I did a tweet about this. Behind every quote-unquote alpha man 
are thousands of faceless average men. Not every man, and the, and the alpha is nothing without them, right? And so that is the that is the desire of most men. Now, every man, most as far as I can tell, desires to be a, a husband and a father, and so he puts his masculine energy into service for the creation of a livelihood and the protection and provision of his family, right? And so virtuous masculinity shapes that desire into service, which advances the cause of civilization. And, and once we do that, we understand, we understand and discover the reason to cultivate all these virtues, the reason to cultivate wisdom so that we can live a long and fruitful life and pass something on, the reason to cultivate strength because we can be more productive and create greater prosperity. Yes, all of this is corrupted by sin nature, absolutely. But again, that's why biblical masculinity teaches us that it's even more urgent for the well-being of our immortal souls, let's say, that mm -hmm. we shape this in a godly direction. So masculinity unshaped by virtue can be destructive, not always, but it can be. And where does virtue come from? Virtue comes from the eternal values, from God's eternal decrees, and that those can only be found in Christ. And so that's how I put those pieces together. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like just thinking about all you just said, and you're much more articulate than I am right now. Um, but that's that's okay. Um, <laughs> that's my job as a guest. <laughs> but you talk about men being in service, and typically it presents as, you know, wife, kids, family, things like that. Um, What's the most immediate way to serve? Do you think that men, and I think I know the answer to this, but do you think that men um, can just give or do they need to have their cup refilled? And if they need to have their cup refilled, what's a good way to do that? Mm -hmm. Men absolutely need to have their cup refilled. And there are lots of ways to do that. Men, um, men are not simple creatures. That's one of the great, um, that's one of the great lies of our culture is that men are superficial, su simple creatures. And one of the reasons that lie persists is that not all men are as verbal as I am. Like I've always been very talkative and I can articulate my inner reality, but I found that when I talk to men, you know, they don't, they don't disagree. They just don't have the words to express the things that I'm saying. So how can men refill their cup? Well, there's a bunch of different components to this. Um, one is, um, uh, solitude. Uh, solitude is, is time where you're just on your own with yourself, you know, giving yourself the only things that only the things that you can give you. There are things that we need as men that only we can give ourselves. For example, uh, uh, one of the things that relaxes me the most is reading, like reading a book, sitting down with a physical book and reading it, not an audio book, not a Kindle, but reading a physical book, nothing wrong with nothing wrong with Kindle. Audiobooks are, are passive. I prefer active reading with a physical book. Only I can give myself that. I have to actively set aside time and turn off the phone or the computer or whatever and go and read. Another aspect is men, uh, men need to be, they need to be cared for and cared about by their, by their women. And uh, I'm a big fan of Alison Armstrong. She wrote a book called The Queen's Code, which I highly recommend. And um, one of the things she talks about in that book is how a man merely being in the presence of a contented woman he is being recharged and i've experienced this in my life you know in, in a number of a number of moments just a handful of what it's like to actually be around a contented woman those moments stand out in my memory as clear as day and that is one of the gifts that women can give to their, their man is just to be with him 
while he's doing whatever and simply be contented in the moment, you will be giving him such a precious gift and refilling his cup. Men also need time with their brothers. And um, the dialogue about men and emotion is really mixed up today because it's sort of men are men are very emotional. And the Bible is full of examples of men like King David in the Psalms being very emotional creatures. But we have a different relationship to our emotions than than women do. As men, we have to be able to master our emotions at a moment's notice. Meaning that if, if we're at if we're at a, a romantic dinner and and you know um, we're having a very meaningful emotional moment and a threat walks in the door, a man has to be able to turn off his emotions to deal with the threat. Yeah, that's what is expected of us societally, and that's also part of us that we want to be. So we have to always master our emotions, right? But we also need spaces to express them where we'll be safe and where our confidentiality will be protected. And we do that with our brothers in private and in some of the, and in, in some ways secret, right? Like secret meaning like we have our, like this is part of the thing that I did with this men's initiation where these secret rituals, right? Secret has this, ooh, mm-hmm. you know, it's, there's nothing mystical about it, but it's like the thing, the things that we share here don't go beyond the circle. It's sacred and men need that to refill their cups too. But tragically, the most that men get when they refill their cup is, you know, maybe they watch something on TV or something like that. I don't know that that fully refills our cup in all the ways that that we need. And but it takes a man actively setting aside time and energy to go and get those things. And men are not great at prioritizing their own needs sometimes. I can uh, attest to that via my husband. I'm like, it's okay. But mm-hmm. also he wants to spend time alone at night. And I ha- I struggle with that because I'm like, but I want to spend time with you. And I have to be like, right. but no, you need alone time. Like, it's okay. Like, I'll go to bed. You just stay up. Um, mm-hmm. But it's hard to recognize that. It's yeah. hard to. We're told by society that men just seem to be these workhorses, these constant going machines that just give, 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 give to your point. And most women are never told basically men have emotions and feelings and, you know, they have basic human needs. And Mm -hmm. I feel like that is a detriment to society. Your conversations with Alison Armstrong on your podcast are phenomenal. And I, the Queens code is on my list to Mm. get. Um, I have not had the privilege of reading it yet, but the conversations that you guys have had have been really eye-opening. One of the things that stood out to me is she was talking about how women will ask 42 questions. And I did this to you a couple times and I apologize, expecting an answer, you know, for each one. And you're still on question one. (laughs) And I was like, oh, I do that a lot. Okay. So I've had to like be a little more conscious when I do that. And just that little thing I've noticed a shift in a good way in my marriage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, giving men a space to like to listen to them. That it's it can be very very powerful because men, I think many men are not as verbal as women are. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's probably just true. And so sometimes men need more time to process through their thoughts to actually land on what it is that you that you are wanting to hear or what they're wanting to share. So having that patience of uh, like Alison Armstrong says, anything else and just really listening. And you can really draw out the inner life of, of the man in your life. And um, that can be so powerful in terms of 
him recognizing, and I think this isn't, I think this isn't talked about as much, is him recognizing that the listening that he gets from you, his partner, he won't find anywhere else. And he'll recognize that this is something really precious, not, and it's, it's like, that's what bonds two people together. When you recognize that what I have with this person, I can't find and wouldn't find with anyone else because they understand me and they listen. That's what people are really looking for in intimacy. And yeah. um, it can be so wonderful to see the effects on relationships. 1000%. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things my husband had said to me, we were talking about Alison Armstrong a little bit. And to your point of women are tend to be more verbal. Mm-hmm. He goes, it's really interesting. Um, and I think he's actually talking about, I was combining Alison Armstrong with your, the guest who wrote the abusive wife who was David that? Edgington. Yes. So I like combined the two podcasts. I had like a Renaissance of men podcast marathon um, while he was at work and I came home and, but he goes, it's really interesting because men are typically physically strong mm-hmm. and women tend to be verbal. Now, if a man uses his strength against a woman, mm-hmm. that is bad. But if a woman uses her words against a man, then that is totally okay by society and actually encouraged. And then what does that do in family court? And I was like, holy smokes. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, because if I'm, if he laid his hands on me, that would be absolutely awful. But mm-hmm. if I used my words against him, no one would think anything of it. Yep. Not no one, but yeah, so it yeah, would be societally you... acceptable. Yes. You hit on something so major. I have an hour long, I have a talk that I gave at a conference a couple years ago that uh, I have the audio and I still have the presentation. I've been meaning to turn it into um, like a YouTube video or something like that. But you've just hit on something so important. It is absolutely weapons free, open fire for women to use their words against men. And the reason why we accept it is because we have this little nursery rhyme in our heads, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Now, the reality of that is that is untrue. That is a lie. Now, we tell kids that because we want to defend them from name calling and bullies, right? But the, yeah. reason, the reason why we have to say it in the first place is because names do hurt. Words yeah. do hurt. And the reason why they hurt is, is something called shame. Shame, if you look up the definitions of it online, all the definitions of it, all of them, they all say shame is pain. Shame is a painful feeling. So using words by shaming somebody, we can create physical pain in them from a distance. And that's what shame is. And so we have a total power imbalance in in the West right now where men can't, a woman can almost beat up a man. She can hit him on the head with a frying pan and he can't do anything back because if he does, the police will come and take him away. not her right so thankfully women are not that physically strong so like don't hit your husband with a frying pan but a woman's strongest punch like this isn't marvel like you're not like that that's not a real thing right um so so women's ability to do physical violence against their husbands without the aid of some weapon which is criminal is very limited right Yes. yes but men have no ability to physically defend themselves and at the same time, women's ability to verbally, viciously shame men or revile them is not only enabled and encouraged in the home, you go, girl, get him. 
it's turned up all throughout society. Yes. And men not being verbal don't have the dexterity to respond and they don't know how to they don't know how to protect themselves for shame because they love women and they want to serve women, but women have become their enemies. Thank you feminism. Yeah, yeah, feminism. Um you talk you told a story about how feminism really started and it was back when the men came home from World War II. Mm, that was a big part of it. I cried. Like I, mm. I've told people about this and they like, look at me like I have three heads when I'm like, I cried about this. And they're like, I don't like, yeah, like factually that makes sense. I can see that, but I'm like, no, like you don't get it. And I don't remember what episode it was on that you told that, but I know you do have an Instagram post about it now. Mm-hmm. Um, And feminism is still touted as this great, thing as you know women need to be fully independent and i I mean even my mom told me you know make sure you have your own income right because heaven forbid he leaves you need to be able to take care of yourself you know you need to be independent you need you know to do this um and don't get me started on the clothing choices nowadays so (laughs) like most of the time the women's shirts there's only half of it i don't know understand why this is style but it is um but feminism has just completely destroyed Western society. And it, do you mind reshare? You can do the spark notes version, but that story sure. of, you know, that world war two and how that really started. Mm-hmm. So that, that um, for those who want to read the full version, the text of it is pinned at the top of my internet, uh, Instagram page. It's called when the men came home. It has that image of Rosie the Riveter. So that's the text of, of that. And if you want to hear me um, tell the full story on my podcast, it's the recent one with Feminine Not Feminist Live, The Great Reconciliation, is my introduction to that podcast. So the, the Sparknotes version, um, I, won't spo- I won't spoil it because it'll, I think it'll be more powerful yes. if you go read or listen to it. Yes. It's to say I was, I was living in New Zealand and I was taking a, um, I was taking a personal development class. And uh, in this class, I was in a group of men and women, and there was a woman I was seated at lunch with who was in my group who was talking about, um, so New Zealand uh, in the 1940s, like now it has like 5 million people or something like that. So it's still like, I live in Phoenix and Phoenix has more people than the entire population of New Zealand. Um, and so, but back then it was like one and a half million people or something like that. And 100,000 men went overseas to fight from New Zealand into the European and Pacific theaters. And in World War II, this is before the days of the internet, like New Zealand felt far away from the world in 2019 when I was living there. Like I can't imagine in, in you know, 1940, how far away it felt. Mm-hmm. Like no internet, I can't even mail, you know, telephone wasn't even a thing. Like you're just, you're out in the middle of nowhere essentially. And these 100,000 men, I think it was, traveled to, um, to the European and Pacific theater. And this woman is telling me that when the men came home from war, she's recounting a story that her mother told her. Um, the, her mother said, when the men came home from war, the women, the women of New Zealand were like, what do we need the men for? We've done it all ourselves. And so I talk in the post about what my reaction to that was and what the truth of what it was that had been experienced. And it's been very powerful for many men and women to think through, to think through that moment 
Um, so yeah, I hope you'll read it or listen. listen yeah, please, please do. Um, I know I've talked about it when I talked with Natalie Beisner. I talked about it a little bit. Oh. I mentioned it. Um, and it's just what I also find interesting in today's society. There's this dichotomy that women are told, you know, be a dependent, make your own money. Don't ever rely on a man. But also then there's the fairy tale of you need your Prince Charming to be happy. Yeah. And I'm like, you can't have both. Yeah. Like, that's Great like, point. but that's dating culture, right? I mm-hmm. think that really sums up dating culture maybe is you can be independent and do what you want and throw, you know, pick a new guy when the seasons change or whatever. That is a brilliant observation. Yeah, it's like it's like it's it's very much this double-minded. You can have it both ways. Like you can you can be the princess being rescued by the prince who'll sweep you off your feet, but then you'd better be independent in case in case he leaves you. You still have to be the boss babe. Yeah. And and the way that actually manifests is this expectation that men are just supposed to be whatever women desire, which yeah. is like, oh, now you're supposed to be strong and dashing and handsome and romantic, but now you're supposed to be like hands off and let me have my independence. And you're just kind of supposed to know when you're supposed to do one or the other. And you're just supposed to know you have to read my mind, but you yeah. can't read my mind. I better go find another Prince Charming patriarchal. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I'm thinking of the movies and the shows and, yeah. you know, the messages that little girls are taught, but then also boys. Yeah. You know, you're, I don't ever see positive fathers portrayed in shows or um, strong fathers. It's, you know, they're always weak and the woman's in control and, you know, he's kind of aloof and doesn't really know what's going on. And that's, why would a, a boy want to become a dad if that's how it's portrayed? Mm-hmm. What seems to happen most often now is a new season. I don't, I don't watch TV, uh, but mm-hmm. I hear about it. Um, as, a, as a new show will come up, I don't know, Yellowstone or whatever, and they'll allow a really strong male, male character for yeah. or Stranger Things. I did watch Stranger Things. They'll allow a strong, confident male character for a couple seasons, and then they'll totally destroy him by the third season. And you see the same thing happening with classic characters. They destroyed Han Solo, Luke Skywalker, Jean-Luc Picard, the Terminator, right? Like all the Marvel characters at the end of uh, at the end of Endgame, you know, like yep. they've all one by one, they set them all up and then they knock them down because they want men to watch because men are tired of watching like pansy men the one yeah. exception to this is is the recent top gun movie that was yes. really well done where it's like yes. oh they let the guys be guys fantastic Hallelujah. Yes. yes um even in um oh it escapes me now you're talking about marble and you were talking about um stranger things i didn't watch stranger things mm. but you, you you mentioned one of the shows I'm a giant scaredy cat. Like, couldn't do it. Maybe it was Yellowstone. I don't know, but it, they just—they never. They can never allow a man to be strong, like you had mm-hmm. said. And um, there was one. There was one other exception. Sorry, my husband let my cat in because she had surgery, and I got distracted. It's okay. <laughs> by what? By what was being said? 
But yeah, why would a boy want to do that if he either is going to be aloof or he, he can be strong, but then in some way he gets decimated? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can't help but wonder, not that there's one necessarily cause, but is that the reason that babies aren't being born in America? Like that our birth rate is so low? Oh, man. Like, why would you want to have kids? And then the court system, like, why would you want to have kids? Yeah. Women can use their words to take your kids and you can't do much about it. Why would you want to? Like, not that there's necessarily one thing, like I said, but all of these little pieces. I don't know. I mean, there. I, I think there's no great observations, by the way. Like the the no the birth rate dropping, there are so many there are so many different aspects to it. In fact, I think it's probably most appropriate to look at the world th- right now through a lens of they're doing absolutely everything to destroy the family. Yes. Everything like declining yes. testosterone rates, you know. And, and and one of the challenges is that it's also like women getting married older, right? Like women's fertility starts declining you know, at age 30 and by 37, you get, it's, it's just what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's pretty much fallen off a cliff at that point. And so you have a generation of girls who have spent their entire twenties, you know, working, partying, traveling, whatever. And then they wake up at around age 30, like I better find a husband. Right. And it's like, well, that then you only get two kids because you don't want to have so many kids that you compromise your lifestyle. Meanwhile, the, the, the cultural mandate is to be fruitful and multiply, meaning there should be more of you. And so many people are only having two kids. Right. And then you have LGBTQ. Right. You have uh, you have all these different issues of, of denatured food. Like if you look at photos of, of men and women in the 60s, people were just generally pretty fit. They had a low body fat percentage and like they weren't doing crazy restrictive diets or anything like that. They were just leaner. Part of that is because our our diet has become so denatured, not just with processed foods, but less nutritious, natural foods, right? Everything is designed to, to rip the family apart, to turn us all into autonomous individuals. And, and in many cases they've succeeded. We're all locked into our phones right? We don't want people don't go out and spend time with each other anymore. The political divisions are tearing everyone apart. And and naturally, the birth rates will be declining. And when you throw into that feminism, when you have there, and what I observe is, uh, and, and, and I don't know, maybe some of your listeners won't like this, but I'll say it anyway. That's okay. That's okay. Okay, okay cool. Is that there, that, like, there are many girls that I've met, you know, who are like, they can't wait to be mothers. They want to take care of snuggly, perfect, cuddly little babies, right? Who wouldn't? Mm -hmm. But they're less enthusiastic to be wives, to care for stinky, snorry, grumpy men, as we can all be. And so they finally consent to being a wife because they want to be a mother, not because they actually care about being a wife. And you get misery in marriages. And then, as you mentioned, the divorce industry, where it's like, well, I don't want to be married to this guy anymore. We've had a couple kids. I'll just take him for half so I never have to work again. And uh, whatever, patriarchy, bye. And the men are just destroyed. And so you have women, why should I get married? And now you have men being like, why should I get married? If she can just accuse me of all these horrible things, I have no recourse. She's going to get half, if not more. Why should I bother? And it's evil, period. Yeah, yeah. Agree 100%. And the other thing that baffles me too is 
there are women who they're Christian and um, or they say they're Christian. Maybe that's a better Christian. way to. <laughs> I know the direction you're going, and no, they're not Christian. <laughs> I know what you mean. Um, but then maybe it was the Homemakers Manifesto who posted a thing. It was um, there's a you know, be fruitful and multiply and basically be a good submissive wife. And that gets raged upon if you talk about that in the Bible, but also the Bible, there's a thing to love your enemies, but that's never, you know, poo-pooed on that. That's perfectly okay. And if you mention that to a woman who says she's Christian, but really isn't, she breathes fire. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. she breathes fire. And, um, it's a little intense. I did it recently and um, like to someone, like I asked a question and it did not go well. <laughs> it, yes. it, it it did not go well. No. It's, it's, it's rebellion. The garden Genesis yeah. talks about yeah. it, right? The te- Paul says this, Eve was deceived. That's what, that's what he says. Adam was mm-hmm. not deceived. Eve was deceived. Adam was just passive and went along with what Eve did, but Adam was not deceived. Eve was deceived. And what was Eve deceived by? What did the serpent say? And ye shall be like God, knowing good and evil. The temptation is was ultimately that Eve was tempted by was that she gets to be God. And when you try and insist, like, no, Eve, you know, all, all the women are we're all all the women are are daughters of Eve, just like all the men are daughters are sons of Adam. When you try and tell women that no, you are not God. God is God. And God gets to tell all of us who we are and what to do, not you. That rebellious spirit springs up and yes, does start breathing fire like a dragon. What is a dragon? A dragon is an evolved version of a serpent because the serpent wasn't crushed. It became a dragon. I had not considered that, but yes, I remember you talking with, um, I think it was Spencer Smith who does, Mm the third Adam series. Mm-hmm. Um, He's great. And talking about how the new age is all their gods, quote unquote, are females. Yes. You know, there, there are some males, but the female is very much revered and the, the divine feminine and things like that. Um, and I feel like that almost has been co-opted by feminism to try and strengthen their position like see see now we're supposed to be worshipped too and there's a thing that says we're supposed to be Mm -hmm. yes very very accurate and you can see go back to the beginning of the conversation when i was journeying through the new age world and exploring masculinity that as i start sort of standing up and you know starting to express myself it's like no 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 no. men need to get in their place right and so we see this i don't think christianity is the default religion of of america anymore in fact i know it isn't Feminism is the default religion of America and also the new age. And yes. by the new age, I don't necessarily mean like hippie crystals tie dye. I mean, the new age is this giant syncretic, meaning it blends all the different world traditions together, except Christianity. It blends them all together to produce this kind of like soup of practices and ideas that we all just kind of swim in, you know? So you, so you go to whole foods and you can see like Shambhala magazine. And then there's like, incense on the on the shelves there actually i've seen this and there's like and then there's like a native american dream cancer and like none of these things have anything to do with each other but they're all presented as this one holistic system that's what i mean by the new age and in the new age god is a woman and i did a whole two and a half hour long presentation in february about that 
um, where I showed it from my 20 years of experience or 30 years of experience. So yeah, it's, it's, it's used as fuel. I can't, I, I'm not sure if it's used for fuel as the feminist fire or it's what's actually pushing feminism itself. Probably a little bit of both. Probably a little bit of both. And mm-hmm. by taking all of those um, perceived positive parts of all of, cherry picking, all the different religions, yep. you can pick the things that you like and ignore all the things that you don't like mm-hmm. consequences. <laughs> so based. <laughs> yes. Yes. No, that's literally, I mean, that's literally it. You can choose from a smorgasbord or you can choose from a buffet of all these different, you know, spiritual practices. Well, I can do a little bit of yoga and I can do some Native American chanting and I can have my crystals and I can have my tarot cards. None of those things have anything to do with each other. (laughs) Right? Yep. And yet you can put them together into this form of spirituality that all has one characteristic and that's to make sure that you are never challenged on your weaknesses. Yes. Yeah. And even when they say um, doing shadow work or mirror work or whatever you want to call mm. it, you're not necessarily looking at your weaknesses either because you can just be, you can blame it on others. A really common thing now is everything is a trauma response. And in oh. certain cases it is. Like, I'm not saying nothing is a trauma response, but if nothing if everything is a trauma response, nothing is a trauma response. Just like if yes. everything is an emergency, nothing is an emergency. Yes. So, yeah. Well, no, I mean, I'm <laughs> glad you say that because it's used as an excuse. It is. Right? I had a traumatic experience in my childhood, and you're not allowed to question that because I've made it into an idol. And this is this is like, okay, so trauma is a real thing. It's massively overused. It's yes. like... It's like when you look at physical trauma, like real physical, like you can go online and Google images of physical trauma, right? And you can see what the word literally means to the body. You're going to see some probably pretty graphic images, right? Mm -hmm. So the level of things in our lives that actually do that to our, we might say our energy body or to our psyche is very small. And if you've grown up in an environment where it's been pervasive and consistent, then, then I'm very sorry, then, then, but the vast majority of people who are claiming trauma responses haven't truly grown up in those genuinely right. destructive environments, right? So, okay, so let's look at trauma response, the way that it's set up. What a lot of people have done, and I did this too, I think many people in the New Age do, is they have this traumatic experience in their lives, right, that's in the past, and they build their identity around it. Like, who I, who I am is based on this terrible thing that happened to me and me escaping from this terrible thing. And in the meantime, they've put it in the place of God in their life, right? And so when they say it's a trauma response, why are you not allowed to question it? You can't question it because it's at the center of their identity. It's become their God. And like you said, everything should be questioned. Everything should be questioned, no exceptions, mm-hmm. right? So so when you start pushing through that, people start to get very, very upset because they start feeling their identity being challenged. And when their identity gets challenged and the whole thing falls apart, they don't know who they are and it's very disorienting. This is where Christ can come in and redeem all of it, right? And and actually regenerate you into a whole person for the first time. And I've been very blessed to experience that. But a lot of people, again, aren't willing to take that step past the boundary line to the thing that they've rejected, right? <laughs> because the Bible's pretty clear about, again, who we are as men and women and how we're meant to relate to each other. 
and and many many and, and the family as well. And uh, in many cases, our whole culture can be described as a as a reaction and a rejection of what Christianity teaches. Yeah, and you know, you look at. Um, I feel like the schools are a really great example of that. Mm-hmm. You know, they took prayer out of schools. They took you know. You can't wear an I love Jesus shirt, but you can wear, you know, an I love, I don't know. Trans kids. Trans kids or, you know, you want litter boxes in the bathrooms for the kids because they can't use a toilet and they think they're a cat. Like that just, it boggles my mind and I don't. I shouldn't say I don't understand how we got here because I can kind of see how we got here. But what do you think is the reason that we've stayed in this place for so long, I guess? Because um, we touched on it earlier. Um, It's because women are weapons free with their words against men. That's why is, is that men don't know how to stand up to women's words we're not allowed to question women. We have a whole thing about we have to protect women's self-esteem at all costs. And we're not allowed to say, you are wrong and you are being irrational. We're not allowed to say that. You're not yeah. allowed to question the almighty woman. And that's why we're here. Because the prioritization of emotion over rationality leads to destruction. Now, ideally, emotion and rationality are supposed to work together because right. they're two different ways to process reality. But you have to make sure to lead with rationality because emotion changes from one day to the next. How we're feeling can depend on what we ate for breakfast, how much coffee we drank. If we had a piece of if we had a piece of, of candy and we have a sugar crash, it manipulates our emotions, right? Hormones are a big part of that for both men and women. But rationality, logic, reason is consistent from day to day. So we have to lead with that. But we're not, as a culture, allowed to lead with rationality and reason anymore. We lead with emotion because men can't tell women no. They've lo- they lack the cultural power to do it. They lack the moral courage to do it. They, lock- they lack the theological foundations to do it because they've abandoned Christianity. And so we've adopted the feminist theology that women are cosmic victims. And anyone who's a victim must be allowed to do whatever they want. Their victimhood makes them right. And your victimhood does not make you right. No, your victimhood does not make you right. Yeah. No, that I'm trying to figure out what point I want to address. <laughs> I guess, um, I'll start with the hormone. So for those who, you know, can't read between the lines, that means a male should lead because they're more rational because women's women have lots of emotions. Um, Men have emotions too. Men they can be do, plenty but, irrational. But you can like you talked about earlier, you learn to master them. So Mm -hmm. when you need to, you know, if there's a threat or you need to take care of business, Mm -hmm. you're able to do that. Where a woman, we're not, that's not our skill set. That's not something we're good at. We have other strengths Mm -hmm. and that's, you know, I saw this thing and I don't know how true it is, but it makes sense. You know, women have a 28 to 30 day hormone cycle. Mm-hmm. Where we're productive in certain aspects, then we need to rest and all the things. Whereas men have a roughly 24 hour hormone cycle. Mm. That's why you're able to do things differently and you're able to push longer where women 
you know, there's about a week where we need a period of rest and that's what we're meant to do. Um, yes. But even that isn't honored in society because women are supposed to go to work. But at the same mm. time, also, you're allowed to take mental health days and days off. It, it, like I said, it's that dichotomy again of independent woman, but find your prince charming. Mm-hmm. Yes, that 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 women can do everything can that men can do and do it better, but we need more accommodations than than men do to do that. Like what? Like I, I always like to use the example of, of the way that men of the way that I think men and women's bodies are designed. It's typically said that women's women's bodies are designed to handle pain more than men's because of childbirth. Okay, I've heard that. I've heard that said. Okay, now that may be true, right? But men are designed to handle a very different kind of pain. For example, trench warfare in World War One, like the amount of pain living in that long, slow, deadly deeply uncomfortable environment or on on ships you know during um during the trading days on the high seas right or in the mines right our bodies are designed to take that level of long slow consistent grinding pain right versus short sharp acute pain of childbirth so even that discussion misunderstands the different kinds of pain that 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 men and women are designed to handle and I, i think we lose any notion of distinctiveness by saying that, you know, women are designed to function in a competitive environment in the same way that men are. They're just not because no. women have a fraction of the testosterone. Testosterone is about competition, contest, combat. That's what the working world is. And so you introduce women into the working world. What do you do? Women can't compete at the same level of men. They just can't. Like the, the, the U.S. women's soccer team, how many games do they have to lose to teenagers before we just kind of accept that, like, okay, there's some biological differences between men and women. Right. And when you, and when you expand that to the working world, a hyper-competitive corporate environments, what do you get? You don't get women competing to the same level of men. That hardens women. You see this as their faces get all edged, right, from the testosterone. It actually stresses them out. What you get is you you diminish men's ability to compete and produce results through the neutering of language. Oh, we're going to circle back and we're going to touch base and, you know, we're going to table that from now. That language is so gross because it's pure passive aggressive combat, which is what we're forced to do because men can't pick on each other. Men can't men can't be direct with each other because we have to be friendly to women. So we invert the values of the corporate environment, which is why it's so awful. That's why the movie Office Space is so grinding to watch why it's like nails on a chalkboard, because we had to make an environment that's still competitive, but that's competitive in a way that's friendly to women. We did that with language because women are more verbal than men are. Right. And so now you start to see how all this shows up. I had not considered the workplace and from that aspect, but yeah, I can see now when you articulate it that way, how that would be the case. Yeah. Like I'm thinking, you know, my mom being in the workforce and my dad and the different stories they would tell. Um, and my dad would be like, you know, yeah, I was able to tell because my dad mainly worked in automotive. And so there mm. wasn't many women in that field. Right. Um, and so he was able to be blunt and he'd talk about, you know, so-and-so was an idiot and so-and-so did this and using colorful language at work and it was totally okay. Yeah. Um, but maybe five or so years before he retired, it was, you know, you can't say that you have to talk this way. My dad's like, 
what are you talking about? No, yeah. no. Whereas the stories my mom would tell, it would be this constant conflict between her and her male boss. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't understand each other. And that that's a really great perspective that I had not considered before. I hated the corporate environment. And I had to figure out why I was not good at it. I don't have a problem with hierarchy and authority, but there was something about being in a giant corporation and hearing the way people communicated that was awful. I couldn't take it because I'm, I'm very sensitive to language because I'm verbal myself. And so I, it took me a long time to figure out what was going on there. What was it? What was it about the phrase like we're going to circle back and touch base? What was it about that particular phrase that drove me nuts? And so I had to, I had to take it apart. And so it took me a while, but I did it. That's the way my mind works. Let me drill to the center of it and get a crowbar in there and shatter it with the crowbar. You sound a lot like my husband in that aspect. <laughs> Excellent. Husband sounds awesome. He is. Um, one of the things I noticed when I did work in the corporate field was I tend to be more blunt in the way that I speak, mm. which is not how some women speak. They want to do that passive aggressive. And I'm like, no, like, let's just figure this out. Mm-hmm. Whereas my male bosses had that more passive aggressive, let's mm-hmm. circle back type deal. And so I'd be like, no, like we just need to figure this out. Mm-hmm. And it didn't work. But then also me being a manager of a male also didn't work. And I could see why that was creating issues too. So um, someone is probably going to hear this and flip out, but I'm much happier at home. Um <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Ah, burn it down. Yeah, yeah. Praise I left, God. I, I left a six-figure income, and I'm happier at home. And people are like, probably uh, get a little bug-eyed when I say that. But to your one of your points earlier, my values do not have to be your values. Right. So. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Really, it's a, it's a. So you know about the speed bump of of having to let go everything that you believe to follow the truth. One thousand percent. That's why I was like, yeah. yeah, yeah. I literally walked away from a six figure income, and we weren't married yet. But he was like, we'll figure it out. Awesome. So yeah, that's great. Well, well, this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation, and I truly appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Um, can you plug your podcast and anything else? And it'll also be in the show notes too. Yes. Thank you. This has been wonderful. I've been, I've really enjoyed getting to talk about some of these ideas, which I haven't been able to talk about on a podcast before some of them like language and workplaces and stuff like that. So thank you. This has been, this has been wonderful. Um, and for those who want to know more about me and what I do, uh, you can find the Renaissance of men podcast by going to renofmen.com slash links. And then you can find it on Apple and Spotify. You can also go to my YouTube channel. Um, I have a men's mentorship program and you can find that by going to rentofmen.com slash mentorship. And, uh, and there's different levels for that. I also have a new online men's group called the council, which is on telegram for right now. That's rentofmen.com slash council. And you can find all of that and more by going to rentofmen.com slash links. Well, and all that will be in the show notes guys. So you can just click on it in case you're driving or whatever. And will thank you again. And thank y'all for listening. And I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful night conversation. And I truly appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Um, Can you plug your podcast and anything else? And it'll also be in the show notes too.
Yes, thank you. This has been wonderful. I've been I've really enjoyed getting to talk about some of these ideas, which I haven't been able to talk about on a podcast before. Some of them, like language and workplaces and stuff like that. So, thank you. This has been this has been wonderful. Um, and for those who want to know more about me and what I do, uh, you can find the Renaissance of Men podcast by going to renofmen.com/links, and there you can find it on Apple and Spotify. You can also go to my YouTube channel. Um, I have a men's mentorship program and you can find that by going to rentofmen.com slash mentorship. And, uh, and there's different levels for that. I also have a new online men's group called the council, which is on telegram for right now. That's rentofmen.com slash council. And you can find all of that and more by going to rentofmen.com slash links. Well, and all that will be in the show notes guys. So you can just click on it in case you're driving or whatever. And we'll thank you again and thank y'all for listening. And I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful night. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thank you for listening to Speed Bumps. If you're enjoying this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you subscribed, rated, and reviewed my podcast on whatever platform you're currently listening on. I also wanted to plug my YouTube channel, where I'm posting videos every Friday under the hashtag FinnApprovedFridays. In the videos, I demonstrate how I do everyday tasks and tell you if the items are Finn approved. You can find my YouTube channel by searching one thumb L, that's O-N-E, thumb E-L, or clicking the link in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and on to the show.